Now, before we get started, I want to thank our partner for this podcast, Slate. Now, Slate is the content creation platform used by social media teams in sports, media, and entertainment. Their completely customizable platform has set themselves apart, with that software giving brands like the LA Rams, the Houston Rockets, and Comedy Central full control over the look of their brand across social media. So whether it's at the World Cup, the Super Bowl, or indeed the Champions League final, you've seen Slate-made social content by the biggest brands in the world. So check out what they're about at slateteams.com. That's slateteams.com. Hello and welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Now, if Twitter is anything to be believed, Man City are about to be stripped of their Premier League titles. And as an Arsenal fan, I can surely see us as Premier League champions for the new year. But the reality is much more nuanced. This week, we're joined by football finance expert Kieran Maguire. And after, we turn our attention to the NFL for a Super Bowl debrief, as well as a look at the recent Game Pass and DAZN carriage deal. We hope you enjoy the show. My name is George Bray. I'm a senior content manager here at Sports Pro. And as always, I'm joined alongside me by Mr. Tom Bassam, our news editor. Hello, George. I'm delighted to say we're alongside Kieran Maguire, football finance expert and lecturer at the University of Liverpool. Now, amongst being famous for being the man that taught the nation the term amortisation, Kieran is also the author of The Price of Football that explores club finance and their valuations, as well as being a host of a podcast of the same name alongside Kevin Day and Guy Kilty. Kieran, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks very much for the invite, guys. Looking forward to this. It's fair to say that your your job, I suppose, has fairly evolved over the past few years as knowledge of and interest in football finances seems to increase weekly. How have you found that transition? It's been great fun. I never expected to be getting ad hoc phone calls from prime ministers, for example. I've got a WhatsApp exchange with Tracy Crouch, which which involves some of the sweariest words I've ever known a young lady to use. Um, And she's got (laughs) up in my estimation for that. It's been good because something which was a nerdy hobby of mine, which which I then sort of managed to schlep as a as a job, has has now become slightly more high profile, and I, I think it's just part of the the general takeover of football of our whole lives. Because yeah, nobody used to particularly care about kit launches, but now yeah, when when they come out, it's now a, an event, and we go Trini and Susanna for twenty four hours. Um, yeah, looking looking at collars and and, and colour blends and so on, and it, and it's the same with football finance. It shouldn't be an issue. It's not the reason why we fell in love with the game, but I think it's part of the advent of social media, twenty four hour TV and radio stations dedicated to sport. It fills the airwaves. It gives you a different alignment of the game, and most importantly, it allows you to score points against your rivals. Anything which can be used from the tribal perspective is meat and drink. You've only got to look to see what's happened to those people that don't like Manchester City over the course of the last week to to see that it has become extremely polarised. And perhaps that's reflective of a much broader issue in society today. Well, let's take a look at that in a bit more detail. The amateur accountants have been out in force over the past fortnight as uh, following the 6th of February announcement from the Premier League that Manchester City had been referred to an independent commission um, and has been charged with over 100 alleged breaches of their financial rules. So Kieran, as the expert, tell us what those breaches are and what period that they cover. Well, there's 115 charges, but there's actually three issues. And uh, this this stretches all the way down to 2009. So I I think we can summarise it in in, in the following ways. Financial fair play is based on a break-even model, and break-even is income less costs. So if you want to stretch financial fair play, what you can do is you can either artificially increase income coming in because that increases your top line or artificially decrease the money going out or do both. And that's the accusation that's been levelled at Manchester City. Football clubs get their money from three sources. You've got match day ticket sales. You have 
broadcast rights and you've got commercial deals. The thing about match day is you know the ticket prices, you know the number of people in the stadium and, and you know the number of matches. So it's actually not that easy. I think clubs have missed a trick here personally. It's not that easy to manipulate. There is one pretty well-known club that, that charges the club owner, who's a very generous club owner, a million pounds a year for his seat, for example. And that counts in financial fair play, and that's all deemed to be within the rules. So, so this, this does show how, how ludicrous the things can be. In, in respect of Manchester City, you can't manipulate the broadcasting rights because they come from UEFA and the Premier League and everybody knows the numbers. So therefore, all of the focus, if you want to be creative, comes in respect of commercial income. And the accusation that has been levelled, and remember, Manchester City are innocent until proven otherwise. Uh, the accusation that's been levelled at Manchester City is that they have received money from the club owner and they've disguised it as sponsorship income. So if it was money from the owner, it wouldn't go into financial fair play or only a little bit's allowed. If it's money from sponsors, all of it's allowed. So the Premier League is saying, Sheikh Mansour has effectively given you a load of money and you're claiming it. it's from the Etihad Airways deal or it's from another sponsor in Abu Dhabi, companies which are associated and related to the club owner. We don't we don't know that the amount of money involved. Yeah, we, we've seen a couple of leaked emails from the Football Leaks issue, but that's about as far as that one goes. In respect of dealing with issues in relation to costs, again, the accusation, the allegation, is that Manchester City have effectively been operating snide job contracts. In And, and anybody that's ever watched The Sopranos will have seen this in, in the sense that you you have a contract of employment and you do some work. So Roberto Mancini is supposed to have been paid £1.45 million a year by Manchester City. And at the same time, he had a parallel contract with a club called Al Jazeera in Abu Dhabi, which paid him £1.75 million a year for four days' work. And that's a lot of money. Even Boris Johnson on his speaking tour thinks, Blimey, O'Reilly, that, that's a decent gig. Therefore, the Premier League is saying, well, hold on, you know, you're not really getting out just 1.45 from, from City. You're getting more than that. So, so those are the first two things. Then we have the allegation from the Premier League. Remember the Premier League, which, the, the organisation which took, what was it, two years to approve the Saudi Arabian takeover of Manchester City? Manchester City were dragging their heels. They were deliberately delaying the progress of the investigation into their financial affairs and the Premier League said well that's why it took us four years and therefore you have not acted in utmost good faith and and this is sort of a a fairly catch-all you know it's it's a bit like you can get a yellow card in football for ungentlemanly conduct but it's sort of it it gives it gives the, the referee a little bit of scope and I find this the most intriguing because it, it is fairly woolly and if Manchester City are found guilty of a breach of utmost good faith, then absolutely they they should be sanctioned appropriately. But does that therefore mean that the six clubs who were involved in Super League, including Manchester City, were acting in utmost good faith on the viewpoint that, well, the Premier League's never charged anybody with regards to Super League, and therefore is Manchester City in what what is sort of a, a much broader equivalent of somebody fiddling their expenses or... My my mate Dave round the corner who did my kitchen. Uh, some of it was for cash, okay. And some <laughs> some of it was invoice, some of it was cash, and, and we all know we all know a big Dave that will do that. So of course I, I said no. You know, being a fine upstanding <laughs> citizen and all that, you know, I I, I, I was happy to pay twenty percent VAT on it on what you would like to charge me. So that's where we are. We, we're saying that these these are offences, and this forms the basis. But in doing so, there will be accusations of victimisation of Manchester City? Would these charges have been made if the owners were not from the Middle East? You know, if, if they were from America, if, if they were, were local? You know, there's a whole much broader discussion with regards to football ownership and governance um, on the back of this. To pick up on some of the areas you've talked about, um, you mentioned it being from the 2009 season right through until the end of the 2017-18 season. So almost a decade of allegations at the heart of this. Why has it taken the Premier League so long to put their case forward nearly five years later to see the fruit from this investigation? Well, 
According to the Premier League, it's all Manchester City's fault in, in the sense that Manchester City delayed and prevaricated when asked for information. But I, I, th- I think you, you raised a, a very valid point, George, because I, I'm a person that likes numbers. In fact, I, I love numbers. When I see numbers, I don't, I don't see the numbers. I, I see a story. And if, if I look at the numbers in front of me here in respect of Manchester City's commercial income, in 2011, it was just over 40 million. And then the following season, just as financial fair play was beginning to have teeth, it it trebled to 126. Now, if I was the Premier League, I would have said in 2012, we need to investigate. I also look at the list of highest paid directors, which I've got here on another spreadsheet in respect of the Premier League. And it's saying, yeah. Daniel Levy at Spurs, highest paid director in the Premier League, 3.25 million. You've got Ed Woodward at 3 million. You've got quite a few in, in, in exceeding 2 million and, and so on. And we go through all, each of the 20 clubs and you come to Manchester City, zero. And this has been going on for years. Now, it could be, for all I know, that the directors of Manchester City love the club so much that they work for nothing. But all the same, I would have probably thought that that would have warranted investigation well before 2018. So why has the Premier League done nothing? The simple answer is we don't know. And it's a question I suspect that they will not want to be asked. Do you think there's um, there's any fear from the Premier League side or any worry that they saw what happened between Manchester City and UEFA a few years ago? They saw the protracted saga that was drawn out in the Court of Arbitration for Sport and they saw the ruling successfully go Manchester City's way and some reputational loss really from UEFA and UEFA's financial rules. Do you think that's any there's any consideration there as to why it's taken so long? Maybe seeing how it plays out from that side of things and influencing the decision-making here in the UK? I think they wanted to get a watertight case against Manchester City. And that that could be a contributory factor. And therefore, that's why they you would have thought that they would have crossed the T's and dotted the I's with regards to the accusations. But we've subsequently seen, since the publication of the charges on February the 6th, probably about 10 of them are incorrect. They've got the wrong section numbers from the Premier League handbook. Somebody has not done their homework. Now, it's a bit like VAR. If you have to make a decision in real time, like referees do, then you're willing to give them a bit bit of latitude. One of the reasons we don't like VAR is because it takes five minutes to get a decision wrong at times, and and that's deemed to be unacceptable. If you've got four years and you can't even get... The, the section numbers from your own handbook. You know, it's, it's not as if it's a, it's not as if the Premier League's, oh, I've never seen this document before. You know, honest, God, we, we're not used to these types of documents. It, it's from their very own handbook. So, so then you ask yourself, well, well why, why not get it 100% correct? And why do it on a Monday morning at 10 a.m. and not advise Manchester City? Because if Manchester City have been cooperating with the investigation, you, you would think that there would have been a joint announcement from both parties. And then something else weighs into the equation. The, the fan-led review run by Tracy Crouch, that was due to crystallise into the form of a white paper on the Wednesday. And one of the accusations which has been levelled at the Premier League, self-regulation doesn't work. You don't you don't take your role as a, as a judicial body very seriously. Therefore, could it be that Pure coincidence, 48 hours before the white paper was due to be published, this comes out and it contains a few errors because it was a rush job by the Premier League. And, and also, you know, th- those issues which I raised for in terms of commercial income trebling, well, that was in 2012. Now, those, those accounts were out in 2013 and the Premier League sat on its hands and did nothing for another five years before it launched the investigation. Very strange behaviour from the Premier League. I've not got a dog in this fight whatsoever. If Manchester City are found guilty, they should be punished. And in my view, the board of directors should resign because it it's an effectively an accusation of manipulation of the financial results in order to gain some form of advantage over a nine-year period. You know, under those circumstances, you, the people involved have, have no don't have a leg to stand on in terms of their role as, as executives of a of a high-profile organization. You alluded to the Premier League being a self-regulating body and the accusations that have come that the Premier League in English football is no longer able to self-regulate effectively. 
in my mind, it draws some parallels to cricket. I, I'm a big cricket fan and I've seen the ECB, the England and Wales Cricket Board, tread a very fine line between being a regulatory body, but also being responsible for the game's commercial growth, for driving increase in revenues, etc. How difficult is it for someone like the Premier League to say, we're going to self-regulate and we're going to enforce strongly our rules, but at the same time, damage one of our most prized assets domestically and overseas? Do you think it's possible for a body like the Premier League to be able to balance those two responsibilities effectively? Can it be done? Yes. Has it been done? Here, I'm, I'm not so certain. The fact that the Premier League was oblivious to six of its own members being part of Super League. The fact that the Premier League was oblivious to Project Big Picture, which was an attempt by six clubs to take over the running of the whole of the domestic game, to divide money as they saw fit and and for clubs to keep all of their uh, own TV broadcast money and so on, and you know reduce the size of the Premier League to allow certain clubs to have more overseas tours, which are lucrative. That's where self-regulation got us. It's very difficult for the administrators at the Premier League. They've got a tough job because ultimately the Premier League is a company owned by its shareholders. Manchester City are a shareholder of the Premier League. Crystal Palace are a shareholder of the Premier League. Fulham, shareholder of the Premier League. So initiating charges against your own shareholders is difficult. And I think the Premier League historically has been reluctant to do so because it puts them in an awkward position. And there's lots of factions and you know it, it's well known that there are certain chief executives who have WhatsApp groups of threes and fours. And I believe one, one can contain six clubs. I can't remember which six clubs that is. And they sort of do things independent of the Premier League and then they lobby and you know, the, the Premier League ultimately is an, is, it's an administrative body and it, it's not an executive as such. You know, the executive mm. is, to a large extent, um, the, the, the Premier League club owners themselves. And you know, Richard Masters has a genuinely difficult job because if, if you look at the owners, if you look at some of the egos involved, yeah, and, and historically, the people like Alan Sugar and Simon Jordan and David Sullivan, yeah, big characters that, that you've got to manage, all of whom always believe that they're right. And in the case of Simon Jordan, he is always right, because if you ever listen to him, you know, uh, uh, he, will, he will tell you so in no uncertain terms. And, and, I, and I know Simon quite well enough. He's a very entertaining chap. It, it's, it's a very difficult job. And, and having perhaps an organisation which is a step away from that could, I'm not saying it's guaranteed, it, it could benefit the game overall. But the Premier League doesn't want that because they want to have their cake and eat it. They want to make up the rules which suit Premier League owners rather than football as a whole. And they want to reap all of the rewards. Premier League's fantastically successful. And we should never forget that. But it's not down to the club owners coming up with great plans. It, it is a competitive product partly due to the accidental creation of its constitution. You've got to have 14 clubs to change the rules. It's got a reasonably democratic distribution model, which means that the likes of Fulham and Brentford and, and Brighton could be challenging for European places this season. That competitive uncertainty makes it really popular because you don't know what the result's going to be when you sit down to watch a match. Whereas if you go and watch German football and it's Bayern play, you know that Bayern are going to win or draw. If you look at, if it's Real Madrid or Barcelona, they're going to win the league and so on. So the Premier League is is very, very good. Um, I don't think the, the regulator wants to turn good into bad, but that's the accusation which is being levelled by the Premier League itself. To defend the, the Premier League slightly here, so going back to yeah, 2009, 2010, there was just generally less awareness of football finance issues. I think people that really cared about it were in a minority. It actually wasn't such a big business, frankly. It's only probably since then that the Premier League revenues have hit. I mean, they're now up to the tens of billions, aren't they, over the next right cycle? Um, so the scrutiny was probably lower. But when you talk about that trebling of commercial income for City over that period, and in that initial period, it strikes me as a time that Premier League probably weren't even paying attention because they were sort of like, well, this doesn't particularly matter at this stage. I think in hindsight, that maybe looks worse. But also, the, I think we have to remember that the Premier League is 
like as you said, it's set up, it's a business. Its business is actually selling itself. That's for a reason why it would investigate its own members. You're probably right. Like it, it's, it's not in its interest to do so. Whether or not that means we should have an independent regulator, I think, like my personal opinion, yes. But like, I think that's a, that's a different conversation as to why a city have been allowed to get to this point and the scrutiny has taken this long to come down on them. I just think that there probably wasn't that focus. And it's only as other threats have emerged and other models that have come in that are similar we're starting to realise, oh, actually, this could be a bit of a pattern that could be exploited. So potentially that's another reason why the Premier League is acted now. I think if you look at, so Newcastle, for example, like I think when, when Newcastle were taken over, there was a lot of expectation that they were going to be whipping Kylian Mbappe up to the northeast on a mega contract. And it didn't really matter how they were going to make it work on the balance sheet. It was just going to happen because that's what City had done. But they actually haven't done that. I mean, they've spent a lot of money. Their net spend is really high, but they've not spent like exorbitant amount of uh, fees for single players. And they haven't yet done their massive commercial deals. And I, you feel maybe perhaps once they do those, that change will come. But the Saudi POF has not done the same, has not done the same job as the, as the Abu Dhabi state fund in funneling cash into Newcastle in the same way yet. And maybe this is part of the reason why. This is maybe a line in the sand for how those kind of state-owned clubs will be able to operate because i mean like you're right kieran there are a lot of allegations out about how city have used sponsorship deals to funnel money into the club Like, there's a really fantastic piece i think it's published in the athletic earlier this year like looking at the kind of the tentacles of the mubadala sovereign wealth fund into all of the companies that sort of sponsor city and there's there's touch points all over the place in terms of where that money's coming from so Perhaps that's why it's coming now and, and not another point. But I mean, it's, it's definitely interesting timing with the uh, with the regulator on the horizon too. I agree with you entirely. In terms of Newcastle, I agree with you that their spending has been modest by the standards of Roman Abramovich when he first acquired Chelsea and Sheikh Mansour when the acquisition of Manchester City took place. Both of those acquisitions took place in a non-financial fair play environment. And the purpose of financial fair play is to stop a further entrant into the top six. The top six don't want it to be a top seven. So so therefore, that's that's a part of the reason why financial fair play was introduced. Yeah, they said enough is enough. We don't want competitive football at the top of the Premier League because winning the Premier League was worth 119 million euro to, to Liverpool in 2019. Yeah, a phenomenal sum of money. Um, six into four doesn't go in terms of places. Seven into four, with Newcastle on the horizon, is going to make it more difficult. So you can understand the motivations. As somebody that comes from a sort of an analytical and financial background, I, I look at FFP and I think it's a bit rubbish because it, it allows you to lose £105 million over three years. A, it's not fair because yeah, the word fair implies some form of equitable element to it. And secondly, from a financial point of view, if they said you can't lose anything, I'd say, okay, yeah, we've got something which is interesting here. But one of the things which I've never understood about Manchester City is why haven't they sold their training ground, for example, to another part of the City Football Group at a huge profit? You're allowed to do that. You're not allowed to do and, and you're allowed to do that in the EFL. And we saw what happened with Derby and Sheffield United and Villa and Reading and Birmingham and all of those clubs. They were all allowed to do that. So if Manchester City were, were cheating the rules, they were really dumb the way they went about it. Because yeah, I wish I'd known. Because I'd, I'd have phoned them up and say, "Look, guys, for a, for a very reasonable fee, I, I will show you how to do it properly." So financial fair play is is just a bit. The, the rules themselves are poor because they are open to abuse and manipulation. If Manchester City are proven to have broken the existing rules, then they've got to be punished appropriately. And a financial penalty is not an appropriate punishment, given the nature of what they a what they've done, and b the deterrent effect. As, as you were saying, Tom, you know, we want to ensure that that Newcastle United's owners don't say, "Well, yeah, if we uh, if, if we break the rules, we're going to get a fine, and if we get a fine, we're just going to put up the price of unleaded by two pence a litre, and, and we get the money back anyway." So it's not an issue. So so we have to wait and see. But I, I just look at the rules and I, I find them inconsistent weak it if if you if you overspend a million pounds on the academy it doesn't affect ffp if you overspend on on the transfer market you do as a financier or sorry i'm not a financier but somebody from a finance background you go 
you still spent a million pounds too much. You've still jeopardized the, the business by, by overspending too much. It doesn't matter what you spend it on. Could the argument not be made though that to, to grow, you do need to spend as with any business that it can't always be about balancing the books, but to achieve future growth, you do need to sometimes invest. Yes, I'm a light touch person when it comes to financial regulation, because if you look at other sports, if you look, if you look at uh, you know, Saudi investment into the, in the racehorsing industry, it's improved facilities. It's improved the money which has gone into the the sport. Has it created a an elite? Yes, it has. Ultimately, rich people choosing how to spend their money as they so wish is down to them. I speak to friends at Stoke. Their owner has the biggest salary of of any any person in the country. It was Nicola Coates in twenty nineteen. She got paid more than than Manchester City or Manchester United as a whole, as a whole entity. And why can't they therefore put more money into Stoke, create jobs on a local basis? There is a much broader issue than financial fair play um, when, when it comes to the funding and the ownership of football clubs. The game needs protection. Has it been protected from the Premier League? I'm not so sure. I think it'd be interesting to kind of to go with that and actually look at like, where do you see this going? Like uh, you've said how you don't think a financial penalty is appropriate. To me, I would be absolutely staggered if Manchester City were relegated as a result of this. But I, I'd maybe, I maybe think that a points deduction is possibly the most likely outcome. But I, yeah, interested to get both of your views really on where on where you think this could uh, could end up. I'm, I'm entirely with you, Tom. Being expelled, if you're going to expel Manchester City for breach of these rules, breach of utmost good faith, and keep the other members of the Super League six in the Premier League, then it makes a mockery of the rules. Retrospective points deductions, that, that's that's garbage. You've, you've already celebrated. You've, you've already lifted the trophy. You've already done the, the open top bus parade. And also, Manchester City signed a load of crap at times. Yeah, you know, we, we all remember Joe. <laughs> he, he stanked the place out with, with the money that they overspent. So it didn't necessarily give them an advantage on the pitch. You know, eventually, the, I think the advantage is that you could afford to make more mistakes. Which, which you wouldn't necessarily be able to do. So for me, a points deduction would be appropriate for two things. A, it would be seen as a sign of genuine application of the rules by the commission. And B, I think it would act as a deterrent from other clubs with new owners um, in respect of how they choose to conduct themselves with regards to, to their guardianship of, of individual clubs. I must say, Kieran, I, I, I'm a slightly more sceptical than that. I I would also be absolutely staggered if City were to be relegated, but I would also be extremely surprised to see any future points deduction. I know the sort of common wisdom is that the deduction will apply as to when the charges are proven, if they are proven. But for me, that's shutting the door after the horse is well and truly bolted. It's not just about assembling a, a playing squad or the ability to make, make those mistakes. It's the depth that the club has it's the entrenchment at the top of the Premier League so as a rival fan the frustration for me exists well beyond just those seasons where they triumphed at the time I always compare it a bit like to a sprinter doping once you've built the muscles it's easy to maintain them right or it's easier to maintain them once you've built the structures everything else follows from there and actually you have the foundation with which to build I also look back at that UEFA case, and I see, you know, I, I have no doubt the city will be assembling an army of superbly well-trained and well-paid lawyers that will fight the case tooth and nail. So I would be surprised to see a conviction, let alone a punishment. Well, the uh, the aptly named Mister Panic is the uh, is the lawyer charged with uh, leading <laughs> this one. Interesting character actually has taken on a lot of like very high profile cases for a lot of people that you probably wouldn't think are very popular. Um, it's done both sides of it, I think too. So yeah, I, no doubt there'll be some heavy lawyering going on. And but I think for me, the timing of this is going to be interesting. So if this drags out, right, there has to be a point, kind of a cutoff for this season where it doesn't really apply. So you, they couldn't really have it kind of hanging over as a retrospective thing, even for the 22-23 season, beyond like the end of July, maybe early August, because you've got to decide who's going to be England's representative in the Champions League based on need to draw and all of that kind of stuff. So potentially, I think you could see uh, if, there, if there is going to be any punishment, 
that's the that's the cutoff point for this season. Whether or not that means that City will lose a Premier League title, I guess that remains to be seen. That will happen on the pitch, Tom, not in the not in the courtrooms. <laughs> and there's the Arsenal fan. Although I, I must say, we're recording this on Tuesday before a Thursday release, so uh, that statement could either be very bullish or very uh, misguided. <laughs> or I think that uh, any such punishment will be reserved for the the twenty three twenty four season, and that's where we'd probably see it come in. Whether or not that's a sort of City start on a minus 20 points total which would give them I don't know like eight weeks to get to turn around to, uh, to get out of the bottom I, I, I'd probably go further and say that the only way that you could have a, an appropriate points deduction this season would be at the end of March okay otherwise you've got teams going into the final matches of the season saying well we're fourth and we just need a point from this match and they play appropriately. Whereas if they'd been third, they might have put out a different 11. You've also got to consider the teams at the bottom of the division as well in terms of, you know, there, there is the nuclear option of Manchester City being expelled from the Premier League. I, I think it unlikely. But again, if that decision is made retrospectively and I was the side that got relegated or didn't get relegated, I'd have said, well, hold on. You know, if, if we'd known we only needed one point from the final game of the season instead of three, we would have put out a different 11. We would have played a different style of football. And it gets very, very messy. If you've got 115 charges, you've got to have the time to put together 115 defences. Can that be done in two months when you know, Lord Panic is a very, very highly regarded KC he already has a number of cases, as will Bird and Bird, who are operating on behalf of the Premier League with regard to this. It's not like uh, in Gotham City where the bat light goes on and Batman just drops everything that he's doing and says, right, into the Batmobile to deal with this particular tech case with uh, you know, Sheikh Mansour deemed to be the penguin <laughs> of, of football financial <laughs> shenanigans. It, 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 it's, it's a very procedural issue. And the, the only way that you can ever appeal is if the if due process has been shown not to take place. You can't have an appeal just because you don't like it, as we saw with City and UEFA and CAS. So the Premier League itself will want to make sure that everything is done appropriately, and that's going to take time. And I don't know whether you've heard of Nick DeMarco, who, in my view, is certainly the most high-profile sports KC in the country. He, he spoke to The Times last week, and he said, if it takes four years to make a ruling in respect of QPR, which was a single transaction, uh, if it took two years for, for sort of the Derby and Sheffield Wednesday cases to work their way through, if you've got 115 charges against Manchester City, it, it's we're not talking a couple of months here. How long it'll take it, I think, is sort of a bit of a piece of string question. But um, I guess the only thing that we do know, uh, and this is interesting, I didn't, I wasn't aware of this until I started reading up on this. This can't, this case can't go to Cass, right? That's right, under under Premier League rules, yes. Which yeah. I guess would kind of mean that the ruling that we get is going to be kind of pretty much final. I mean, there may be higher court appeals, but that, there isn't. There is no sort of like that. Once that decision's been made, it's it's a much more finite point than than perhaps we've said before yes yeah and, and i think in in the case of uefa's initial ruling against manchester city i think it could be argued that that uefa was policeman prosecutor judge and jury therefore it, it actually gave manchester city an opportunity to say well given those considerations and there is an independent arbitration body we would like to take that route i think where the premier league have been smart and they've also done the right thing is that they've said well right, we we've we've put together the charges we now walk away and there is an independent commission um which is which again chaired by a kc who may or may not actually be one of the the panel that make the final judgment it could be that his role is more of an overseeing role and it is a genuinely independent commission, and, and that's got to be applauded. If we're talking more years than months, which it looks like we we certainly are with these charges, does it not make a slight mockery of the system and of financial fair play that essentially you can commit these financial crimes, so to speak, over a number of years, and your day of reckoning is half a decade away at, at worst um, in most cases, and by then the perpetrators of those breaches They've left. They're onto pastures new. There was a lot of conversation around Guardiola saying he would leave if Manchester City were to be found to have lied to him over, I think was the phrase used, over their like financial activity. 
I mean, the chance of him still being around when the ruling of those charges come through is, is minimal. I think it's, there's two issues there. First of all, I don't think Guardiola was there when the vast majority of these alleged offences took place. Secondly, in my view, it strengthens the case for an independent regulator with appropriate investigative powers. If HMRC think that you are guilty of a tax fraud, they can arrive at zero notice at your offices with a warrant and they walk through the door and they say, right, you put down all of your laptops, we're we're taking everything away with us and we are now going to scrutinise. The Premier League are not allowed to do that. The Premier League's process has been, hi City, any chance you could send us a couple of your VAT returns or could you just confirm this email took place? If you have an independent regulator and a licensing system and under the terms of the licensing system, which I think this could be the way things were going to go forwards in the white paper, is that if you want to play in the Premier League, you have to apply for a license. And part of the license says the regulator has the right to do A, B, C, D, and E. And that would include the right to investigate and to have access to all data that it requests whenever it requests. And that makes it a lot stronger. And this would mean that the challenges that have been faced by the Premier League in having to use its lawyers, having to go through a slow and convoluted legal process, that gets bypassed and we get judgments quicker and and we get judgments that that do apply to the people and the perpetrators uh, at the time it's taking place. Well, Kieran, it's been a, a real pleasure to talk to you about football finance in general, but particularly around what is a very complicated and drawn out process against Manchester City. There'll be plenty more developments. So uh, at least we know if those those charges really do take multiple years to come to fruition, then we have a financial expert to lean on throughout that time. Although I say that, you have slightly pitched your services as Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Chief Financial Officer of Man City. So we'll have to catch you while we still can. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, well, th- thanks for joining us, Kieran, and we'll keep in touch. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you very much for the invite, guys. Now, Tom, great to catch up with Kieran, but uh, I noticed this week that you're not quite as bleary-eyed as you were on Monday morning following the Super Bowl marathon viewing. How was it? Uh, really great game, actually. Yeah, a slightly disappointing, slightly disappointing end, I'd say. Not, I wasn't particularly bothered about who won, but um, you never like to see a game kind of decided by a, uh, a referee call, and that's pretty much what happened. So yeah, great game up until the last two minutes when it kind of got a bit anticlimactic. But uh, always a great spectacle. Halftime show, as as expected, was uh, yeah uh, a real a real treat. Now, I know regular listeners of the show will be waiting with bated breath to hear of your Papa John's pizza order, but I know that you welched on that deal and instead went for an alternative option. Well, I, I still ordered from Papa John's, but I just went with all the sides. I decided that I couldn't live with a full pizza just just sat there in front of me, which for anyone that's ever had a Papa John's pizza, like actually understandable. The, the kind of idea of it is often actually better than the uh, the experience itself. Um, <laughs> so, I, yeah. That's the same with every takeaway ever. Uh, I don't know. I feel like I've not explored the full the full, uh, the full range of delivery yet. So maybe there's one out there that can, uh, can change my mind. But yeah. The phrase doesn't travel well is a regular part of my uh, like lexicon when it comes to takeaway selection. Well, I am also feeling pretty smug as the only one of our podcasts last week to have correctly predicted the winner with the Kansas City Chiefs. Were you surprised by the result? No, I wasn't surprised. Uh, I think that, I mean, like you picked a team featuring the NFL's Michael Jordan. Like there's, uh, there's no, there's no medals to be handed out there for picking the team with the best coach and the best player. But they were two very even teams and actually it came down to some pretty fine margins. So uh, I think in terms of an NFL spectacle, they'd have been pretty happy with it, about it and fans, neutral fans like myself, got some decent entertainment. Now, following the game, the ratings are now in. The viewing figures are seen at 130 million. It's 107 million over linear channels with 6 million over streaming, just short of the record 2015 audience. Surprising. I know that was a little short of the predictions ahead of the game. 
I think that when all is accounted for, it, they they may be slightly higher. They're just very strong numbers, aren't they? I, I don't think a, a million here or a million there particularly makes too much difference. I mean, that's still a staggering amount of people. And when you break it down into like individual markets, like 87% of anyone in the Kansas City area was watching the Super Bowl on, on Sunday. Like when you think about it, that's you, you drive past 100 houses and only 13 people are watching something different like ridiculous it's similar philadelphia 77 percent of people and these are teams that as well that have been to the super bowl so it's not like this is kind of like a novel experience that they're not used to this is something that they are they've had in the last five years but they still come back in drives and yeah i, I don't think a million here or there um 118 million for the, the halftime show is the is the second most viewed after 2015 like they're all going to be kind of similar there or thereabouts numbers i think it just goes to show the enduring popularity of the of the nfl and the super bowl as a as a product um more than anything else and i guess one of the more interesting things is the kind of the inch by inch growth of streaming on this so six million streamed the in six million americans streamed the game last year this year it was seven million i still think that we're probably a way way off that ratio flipping anytime soon but inch by inch year by year that will that will change when that happens that'll be kind of a a real major moment i think for the advance of that kind of technology when looking at the figures earlier today they seem to be the last four or five years of super bowl rating seem to have been fairly flat line in terms of the numbers you know a couple of million here or there you know single figure percentage shifts what do you think the nfl has to do to increase those figures even further there is so much talk of its popularity and how it's such a global event but in reality it's dwarfed by something like the football world cup final which had 1.5 billion viewers it's dwarfed by something like india versus pakistan at cricket where there's nearly half a billion viewers of these events so do you think it's firstly more hype than it is actually reality of it it's it's reach particularly on a global stage and how important is it that it attracts that global audience to reach the next step i don't think it's hype because you're still talking really about an american product it's not a global sport so the fact that it doesn't have the the reach of a a sport like football isn't that surprising its narrative is its strength within its own market like we don't talk about the global nfl figures because they're not going to be that much higher than than the us figures it might add a I don't know, million or so. And that's probably where they're going to be targeting, right? That's why they're playing games in London and that's why they're playing games in Germany to increase that reach and grow that further. But at the same time, comparing them is like comparing apples and oranges. And the reason we talk about those broadcast figures is because they're relevant to the biggest media market in the world, which remains America. So I don't think that that will be too concerning for the NFL. I think what will be more of a concern is looking at the, this is a concern for every major sports property, but looking at the younger demographics and who's tuning in and how old they are. If the NFL isn't able to capture, capture them and the, the early signs are that at the moment they aren't, that will actually be a bigger problem. But more than 110 million people tune in to watch this game every year in America. If those numbers start falling off, then that's when they're going to stop being concerned. I think they're pretty happy to be topping out at that figure and not expecting too much further growth there they've they've pretty much got the whole market so it's just making sure that that translates into the next generation that will be a bigger concern for them than i think trying to match the the world cup final or india pakistan game for example but surely that international expansion has to be a major strategic goal for them yeah i mean it, it clearly is that's why they have these extra games overseas that's why they are introducing international home marketing areas to allow teams to go abroad and like enter those different territories and sell themselves. Um, could you see the could you see the extreme of that being a Super Bowl that takes place in Europe in the next five to ten years? I would be entirely unsurprised if by 2031, 32, so the end of this current NFL broadcast right cycle, if there wasn't a Super Bowl at least planned to be played in Europe. Likelihood London, maybe Germany. Those two places, I think, would make sense with the kind of the way that this is going. The other thing that that would serve to do as well is to 
completely changed the the kickoff time for the game, which is one of the big issues for for the Super Bowl in terms of bringing in broader audiences. Is that it's scheduled currently in prime time in America, and prime time in America is not prime time everywhere. So it, yeah, there's a reason why I have to stay up late and come in on Monday morning looking bleary eyed. If it was to be played anywhere, I think it would be those two countries, and I can see that happening in the next ten fifteen years. Will be very exciting. I certainly caught a bit of bit of the NFL bug watching watching the game on Sunday night. So uh, by then, I'll be a fully fledged fanatic. Well, the last couple of weeks hasn't just seen pretty momentous moves on the pitch, but off it as well. With the news that the NFL Game Pass app is partnering with the Zone in a one billion dollar international carriage deal. Tom, can you talk me through that a little bit? Yeah, so NFL Game Pass, the NFL's OTT product, yeah, currently marketed and sold by the NFL, has various companies working on it in, in different places. Uh, Delta Trey and Two Circles, I believe, uh, work on it, at least in the UK, if not everywhere. It's available on smart TVs, it's available on your mobile, it's available on desktop devices, and it's been the place, historically, that you can watch every single NFL game on a Sunday depending on the rights held in those different markets. Uh, and it's got a load of other stuff on there too. So all their originals, all of that kind of stuff. Now what's happened basically is that the zone has taken up the the rights to distribute it. So NFL Game Pass will now sit within DAZN. In order to access it, you will need to go via DAZN, which is available again by all of those kind of same platforms that I previously mentioned. It's just adding a further step to that. They've paid $1 million to do that. It's a global deal, so everywhere outside the US, it, this applies. And it just means that, uh, essentially, if you want that same product, that Game Pass product, you have to go through DAZN. You don't have to be a DAZN subscriber. You can pay for a subscription directly for Game Pass. It's just that that custom relationship is going to be managed by DAZN, which gives them a lot of like a lot of like touch points into accessing new customers and using one of the bigger sports properties in the world to do so. But it also kind of takes that some of the headaches of managing that customer relationship uh, out of the hands of uh, the NFL directly. It means they can be a bit more hands off and just say, look, this is up to you guys. It's not working. It's up to design. You can't access games. It's up to design. The marketing is up to the zone. Like the NFL will obviously have a, sta- a say in all of these things, but ultimately, like the responsibility is being passed on to someone else. And at a time when it's trying to grow overseas, that might not be the worst thing in the world to have someone whose job it is on a day to day basis to deliver sports streaming globally to to be in charge of that and has experience in managing customer relationships. It seems like a kind of a relationship that's going to suit all parties, but nonetheless, a, ma- a major investment for the zone. Interesting to hear you talk about the benefits for DAZN in this deal. Is I didn't realize that they were going to be owning the customer sort of touch points um, when it comes to sole subscriptions just for Game Pass. So do you see that being the major value driver in that partnership? Or is it more, you know, bringing people onto the DAZN platform or keeping their customers on the platform by adding NFL content. I don't. I can't confess to know the like ins and outs and specifics and technicalities of how this is all going to work yet. I don't think that's been properly explained. But I mean, I'm just working off the assumption that if they acquired the distribution rights to do this, then that means that they will be in control of the data of who is coming on to buy Game Pass and to use Game Pass. Like you wouldn't do it in order to just do the do the NFL a favor and sort of just yeah just like okay yeah we'll we'll host this that'll be that that gives you it gives you a nice stable platform for this to run off of the real win for them here is yeah is is increasing that customer base and and expanding basically you're already like it's kind of doing some of your market research for you it's like who who do we find here like how can we find people that are willing to pay for sports streaming products what you've done is you've gone out and you've basically acquired a, a, a massive section of that and then it's up to you to convert them into the zone subscribers to your sort of core sports product outside of NFL Game Pass. It's another major move from the zone in what's been a pretty disruptive last few months. Well, Tom, I know it's been a while since we've run this feature, but I thought in the midst of everything, I would check to see if you've been following any of the stories that are going under the radar at the moment. Always. I'm always following stories that are under the radar. One that came across our desk earlier this week, Rugby Australia are investing two million Aussie dollars into a new professionalization plan which involves setting up well, it involves professionalizing the their sort of domestic super W League, 
um, and also will make the Australian Rugby Union national team a, a professional team in the next few years. I guess this for me is, is like, uh, all, I think, I mean, to be honest, all women's sports stories sadly still fly under the radar a little bit. They're not, they don't get the, they don't get the sort of the views and clicks that they deserve. Um, but this is an interesting one. It follows similar moves made by the RFU and New Zealand Rugby. And also just kind of points to other things that we've covered uh, on Sports Pro. So, I mean, there was a study that came out, a PwC study that came out earlier this month, which basically said that women's sports revenues are set to grow 15% over the next three to five years. But, like that doesn't happen if you don't make attempts to try and capture that. So uh, for me, the, yeah, this Rugby Australia move and the professionalisation of rugby union in the country it, it is part of that and for, all for, sort of feeds into that women's sport growth narrative. It's interesting, um, you know, your under-the-radar story comes to women's sports and the remuneration, mine does too, actually. I've been following the, the Women's T20 World Cup and that's been played against a very interesting backdrop of the women's IPL and the draft that has recently happened there and some of the the numbers that have come out have been a a real seminal moment for women's sport in general not just women's cricket the largest bid was £340,000 for Indian superstar Simriti Mandana Natsiva Brunt from the UK from England she she made £320,000 for her involvement in the tournament despite the fact that her wife went unsold so it'd be interesting to see how uh, those household conversations take place similarly Sophie Eccleston I think she went for £180,000 so really is a staggering figure that players are being paid to partake in this tournament as a bit of context in the 100 which is sort of England's flagship England's flagship white ball competition the highest salary in that entire competition is 10 times lower than those figures at 31,000 pounds and similarly if we look at other sports in England the women's football team their players have central contracts worth anywhere between 15 and 30,000 pounds a year and same with rugby those numbers are between 26 and 30,000 so we're looking at women's sports players being paid more than 10 times the average annual salary of major sports just for a six-week tournament. It's a, a hugely, hugely momentous day for women's cricket, one that's overdue, but one that also hopefully, you know, is a big driver in that 15% figure you mentioned, Tom, from PwC. Yeah, as you said, sort of not not without time. Just sort of following on from that, like the, the contrast between the the 100 and the, and the women's IPL, that could, I think, actually come to define both of those competitions, and which ends up being the the more successful. Yes, like like yes, the, it's a short period of time; it's six weeks. But yeah, obviously, when you're being paid that much, that is as it's as it has in the men's game, it's come to dominate the, the calendar there too. So the women's IPO will probably will look back at the end of 2023 and say that was maybe the biggest the biggest story in the whole game this uh, this year. Yeah, I think so too. Those numbers aren't, you know, they're they're from an auction. They're not from a central body. So there is obviously analysis that's gone behind that, that there's going to be a return on that investment. And I think it's just another vote of confidence that, you know, you put the infrastructure in place and you essentially provide the platform and the money will flow from there. Yeah, absolutely. I've said this many times in the office. If I uh, if I'm the winner of of the Euro Millions or something something similar to that, that's uh, certainly where my uh, my investments would be going. <laughs> I don't know. Who that, I don't know who that reflects worse upon, George. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tom. That, what a ringing endorsement of where my investment would like to go. <laughs> Probably anyway. a good place to wrap it up, mate. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, thanks for joining me this week, as ever, Tom. And uh, we'll have to talk about your your fast food orders a bit in a bit more detail off air. Oh yeah, for sure. All right, cheers, George. Until next week. Bye bye.